0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Active Towns channel and the Active Towns podcast. I'm John Zimmerman, your host, and this week I'm super excited to share this conversation I recently had with Catherine King, the urban mobility manager for the New Zealand Transport Agency. Uh, Catherine has a fascinating background and in, including having spent some time living in the Netherlands and starting her career off in London, England, prior to returning to Auckland to uh, do some work at the city level and before moving on to uh, the national level. So uh, she's got some great stories to tell, and I'm super excited to get this started. So without further ado, here's Catherine King. I'm absolutely delighted to have Catherine King on from New Zealand. Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, John. It's so nice to be here with you.
0: Well, hey, it's really cool whenever I get to, uh, you know, have a conversation with somebody on the other side of the world and, and, uh, and basically check in and see what tomorrow is going to be like. And you already told me earlier before we press record, that it's a beautiful day. So. That's good It's
1: too. lovely. You've got something to look forward to.
0: <laughs> why don't we do this just to kick us off? Uh, I know you've listened to a lot of the podcast episodes, so you know that I like to have my guests, you know, kind of introduce themselves. That way uh, we, we can, you know, just kind of cut to the chase uh, and, and you can choose what it is you would like to share. <laughs> so why don't we do that? Sure. Why don't you uh, uh, please take a moment and just kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to do this type of work?
1: Sounds good. So I uh, grew up in Auckland in New Zealand, it's the largest city in New Zealand, and I had a real interest in uh, protecting our environment and looked at ways I could enter a career that, that really focused on protecting and securing our environment for future generations. I did a Bachelor of Planning here um, in Auckland, in New Zealand, um, and worked for a little bit. But like many New Zealanders, the the travel bug hit me. And I went and lived abroad. So I lived in uh, the Netherlands for a year and then moved to uh, Tokyo in Japan and lived there for a few years. And then decided to do uh, more more education and uh, moved to London and did a, a master's um, in environmental policy there. And when I graduated, there were very few jobs in uh, environmental policy, but a huge number in transport. So. I started out working in in transport in London and quickly realized there just what an impact uh, transport has on everyone's lives and and what a huge opportunity transport is in terms of ways we can um, help people to live happier, healthier uh, lives. And in doing that, creating a, a better environment for everyone. So I worked there in London for almost 15 years, quite quite a while um, Mm -hmm. before um, moving back here to Auckland, um, where I've been for the last seven years and really enjoying being back in my own country and and having an impact here.
0: Fantastic. Now, where in the Netherlands were you when you were there?
1: Um, I was in a tiny town called Dronte, which is in the polder, the, the new um, part of the Netherlands. So very flat and a new planned towns. So ah, okay. it was a, a really interesting place to go as someone interested in planning because you could see really what new new towns could be like compared to had uh, the sprawl that we see here in, um, in New Zealand.
0: Right, right. What was the, the year that you were there or, or the approximate uh,
1: timeframe? Uh, Ninety,
0: 95. I okay, think. so ni- ni- ish. Mm. okay, mid 90s. Um, have you had a chance to, to go back and visit and, and kind of see if that area has has changed over over the years?
1: Yeah, I, when I lived in London, I went back a few times okay. and it's still very similar, growing up a little bit. Um, I was really lucky working in London to work on some European funded projects, and there mm-hmm. they have a big focus on sharing um, of expertise across Europe. So yes, they do. I connected got was the city of Eindhoven that's where I spent um, a bit more time and understanding what they were focused on there it was quite remarkable compared to at that time working in London that they were really looking for the tiny little percentages of increase they could get in cycling. And it was incredibly nuanced at that point, looking at, for example, the barriers for parents going into town centres and and trying to do shopping and how they could create bike parks that had a buggy share system, a push share, share system, and really, quite detailed changes that they had to make compared to what we were looking at. It how can we get the first tranche of people to really start cycling?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, had did you have an opportunity to actually see the Hoven Ring there in in Eindhoven after it was built?
1: Yes, yeah, okay. I did. Yeah, that was yeah. there um, when I went and had went and visited.
0: Yeah, so for those of you who are tuning in and not familiar what the Hoven Ring is, it's a it's this fantastic elevated roundabout for for cyclists and pedestrians that basically goes up elevated over the top of a very major intersection. The speaking of barriers, I mean that was one of the biggest challenges as this was such a Car-centric uh, section, and it was outside of the city center. And yeah, it, it was. It's it's one of the signature pieces of infrastructure that uh, really has put Eindhoven on the map. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really impressive engineering there. And I think what they're doing now, looking at how they can enable more flow of people cycling and and tackling some of their signalized intersections for example is really interesting
0: yeah the other thing that they're well known for is the, uh, the tunnels that they have. So the, the bicycle tunnels and bringing those to life. And so there's some, uh, really fun, whimsical, uh, treatments in, in their, uh, their bicycle tunnels that go through their, um, yeah. the, uh, the Monty Python skit that's, that's gonna walk right. this way, yeah. uh, tunnel <laughs> is, is there. So good stuff. Well, that, that's so fun to see that now so it sounds like when you were in london you were, were definitely doing uh, some work in this this arena with active transportation is that correct
1: yes that's right i um worked my entire career in london in active transport and and safety focusing there on really the the full spectrum of what we do from policy into activation, behavior change, um, street design, street maintenance and operations. So I had the opportunity to understand the whole puzzle, all the things that have to come together to enable more people to get out, ride bikes, to walk um, and to feel safe doing that
0: and uh, i jumped over to a a photo here of you and and your 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 delightful linus bike nice bike uh where's the where's the setting for this photo
1: that is the auckland city center waterfront redevelopment it's an area called wynyard quarter and it started about 15 years ago a, a big redevelopment from a industrial heritage that it had and our city development agency called Panuku has been doing some incredible work there to turn what was silos and warehouses and old industrial space into a mixed-use development. So there's a lot of housing that's gone in there, a lot of uh, big businesses, but they've created uh, beautiful spaces for people to gather and enjoy. Uh, and I was involved in some of the cycleway design through that area and um, helping to create bike-friendly streets through there.
0: Fantastic. And it looks like there's somebody in the background there who's challenging you to a race.
1: She does look like that, doesn't she? <laughs> uh, the, uh they're really um, kid friendly streets there, and you can see that she's um, she's really going for it on that bike. Um, <laughs> Why not? Like she's train. having a ball. Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's great. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: So, you you sent me some some photos that uh, also you know sort of speak to the the history of New Zealand and of the area. It's I, I in in scrolling through some of these, it really brought back for me that in the the early early stages of the automobile, many cities around the globe, around the world, you know, really, w- we saw lots and lots of bikes. And so I don't know the exact date of this particular one. I sort of guessed based on the the, the cars and and knowing a little bit about. Uh, uh, what cars looked like back then, somewhere in the late 19 teens, 1920s, somewhere in that range. Yeah, that's right. And just look at all the bikes. So, talk a little bit about that historical context of riding a bike for everyday purposes in New Zealand.
1: I think we have a history that would be really familiar to a lot of your listeners in North America. You're right, at the turn of the century, people got around to work their uh, school everyday journeys by bicycle in, in really large numbers. And this picture from Christchurch is really representative of the city and of the experience that many people had. New Zealand cities were planned out as tram suburbs, so it was really the investment in in tram networks across our cities that was the first big development outwards from the hub, the the city centres. And in that period up to about 1950, the vast majority of uh, trips that people made were by tram, on foot, by bicycle. And we had some of the highest public transport use of anywhere in the world, some of the most extensive tram networks. and, And as we all know, the combination of a great public transport network and cycling, walking friendly streets enables most people to get where they need to go. But with the uh, 1950s, uh, 1960s, we saw the same sort of development patterns as many North American cities uh, here in New Zealand. An extensive rollout of motorway networks and um, suburban sprawl. So, this picture that you can see here of the typical bike parking outside a school in New Zealand, where a good number of people were, were riding right through till around the 1980s, and um, we saw a, around a, a third to a half of people um, accessing schools by bike, and that started to shift as as people lived further from from destinations, and as we saw a really steep increase in the volume of traffic on our streets and parents starting to worry about their kids traveling so then driving their children and that vicious cycle of more people driving and streets feeling less safe and, and so fewer people are walking and cycling so we now have in our towns and cities some of the most car dependent places in the world where many people have no choice other than to get in a car and this photo here from Christchurch in the 70s a a parade uh, that happened and it's it's really until our recent renaissance uh, some of the last periods in which we saw a good number of people getting around by bike
0: yeah. It was interesting too, that one, uh, the bike park area that we saw there, it, it, it kind of looked like it was probably from the 1950s or 1960s. Uh, it wasn't dated that I could tell, but I looked at the bikes and I saw some of the the, the handlebar frames and it, it kind of looked like one of my first bikes <laughs> with that particular design with the swooping um, things. But yeah, so lots of car-centric design. And so, you know, as you mentioned, we, and I'm going to pull up a photo here. So, a, a typical looking street <laughs> and, yeah, sure. uh, and, and cars, and, 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 you know, obviously a, a quite generous amount of pavement there. I get the sense, though, that you sent this through because there's been a, a bit of a treatment to this. Is that correct?
1: Oh, I actually sent this through for the opposite reason to show you. Perfect. To show you the average um, arterial street in New Zealand, and and many of our arterial main streets uh, have this typical width, just over twenty meters wide, and the vast majority of that space is uh, utilized for uh, either parking or or moving car traffic. and, and then you can see the, the quality of the rest of the environment, the, the footpaths that aren't terribly well maintained, broken up by, by driveways and lack of priority to cross the street, for example. But hopefully, what I'm sure many of your viewers will see is the opportunity in that street, is that space that that we can reallocate to give a fairer uh, more equitable use of the space space to to invite more people to access that street um, and to ensure everyone has the ability to get around and and meet their needs.
0: Yeah so you had mentioned that your previous in your previous role you were involved uh, at at the city level the municipal level trying to to build these things and and, and... and and put them what was that experience like coming back to the country from uh from london and diving deep into that
1: i left london just as it was reaching i guess a a tipping point with network starting to grow across London of of safer quieter streets and and they were starting to roll out the superhighway system in the second tranche where protected cycleways were starting to get delivered so you could see that they were really starting to take off in terms of the number of people that that could ride. And of course, we've all seen the videos and and pictures of London from the last couple of years where there's just phenomenal numbers of people that are out by bike. So I, I had seen, I think, and had that experience and worked on projects to have the confidence that you could really transform a city. So I came back to Auckland and felt that sense of what was possible And shortly after I arrived back, the government announced a um, significant increase in funding for cycling projects in a program called the Urban Cycle Fund. Uh, So we went from in Auckland, for example, investing around $5 million every couple of years to do little changes to Auckland Cycle Network to a real commitment and investment, and and we went from 100 million to 300 million um, in a really short space of time. So there was a a really firm commitment to seeing urban cycle networks uh, delivered And this picture here uh, is a demonstration of that. This is Key Street, which runs along the waterfront from the earlier picture all the way along the coast to the eastern suburbs. This was one of the first projects that we were able to get delivered. Um, The first iteration that you might have a picture of was the reallocation of the street space, and this one built on that to create the... I guess, the, the final permanent scheme that sees, uh, as you can see there, rain gardens right. to treat stormwater, given it's right by the, the waterfront. Great allocation of separate space for people riding and a footpath. And it was really a, a great demonstration of iterating and improving a street over time. So this first picture here demonstrates the fast street space reallocation we were able to do by reducing lane lanes for traffic. So the turning lanes were reallocated to, and the bit of car parking create this safe separated space for people riding. And it became a really early demonstration, really visible demonstration of uh, how many people ride when you create that nice separate space where previously people were either on on that footpath you can see um, to the left of the photo, or having to ride mixing with with traffic and pretty um, scary traffic. That's that's a route that large vehicles, large trucks, use to access the port.
0: Right. Yeah. So, uh, what was the approximate uh, time frame of this one? What year was this?
1: Uh, This was 2015. It was a project that we were able, or we had to get in really quickly before uh, a big underground train project, the City Rail Link, kicked off. Um, So, if we didn't meet that one-year deadline, we we weren't going to be able to utilize that space because of all the traffic management that would need to be in place for digging out the tunnel. Uh, So this one really, I think proved that we could do things quickly um, by reallocating street space and also making it an aesthetic improvement for the street with the um, nice planter boxes and things along the street.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is definitely, you know, in that era, you know, about seven years ago that, uh, you know, the protected bikeways are, are, you know, basically, that's the goal, we, we need to be able to get that protected and separated uh, facility down, we've, we've, we know that just having paint alone is not going to, to do it. But then again, <laughs> when you start doing things to this level, it gets a little bit more challenging and you start getting some pushback and some uh, challenges. Mm. And so, uh, so, what's going on here?
1: <laughs> so in that era, you're, you're quite right, around sort of 2015, 2016 is where we really first started street reallocation yeah. um, in New Zealand in our history we've delivered a lot of shared paths through parks and along waterways, um, but really it was the 2015-2016 where we started to shift to protected cycleways and reallocating of space. Interestingly, the I think the painted lanes probably sitting outside of car parking that not many people want to use, they, they didn't seem to elicit the same reaction from people. But when when we started to reallocate street space, and, and this is a, a picture from a project in Wellington, um, we had similar ones in, in Auckland, um, in Christchurch people didn't like that level of change. And there was a small, so we know from our our surveys that around 60% of people in New Zealand would ride if they felt safer on streets, and then around 75% of people welcome and want to see a cycleway network within their city and their area. So this very very loud group of people actually represents a a tiny proportion of our communities but they're very organized they're very active yeah they can make themselves heard in a civic setting in meetings civic meetings and and a lot of people in this context do know how to work within our system so creating uh, a lot of emails and, and making it, I think, for our politicians and, and senior managers, making them really question if this is something that people want to see. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have we continue to see that, and particularly where a cycleway is reallocating space through a business, an area with businesses, a uh, main street and so forth. But as we're starting to see more people uh, cycling, I think that's growing the confidence in, in our politicians and our senior managers.
0: Yeah. So you did that for a few years, <laughs> but you have a new role now. So let's talk a little bit about your new role. What, what are you doing uh, these days?
1: I now work for Waka Kotahi, which is the New Zealand the National Transport Agency, uh, so we're the organisation that funds and supports investment in all transport, but the area that I look after walking and cycling across, across the country. We also roll out policy and rule changes. We're responsible for a lot of the guidance and policy at a national level. We maintain and manage the state highway networks that runs through the country. Uh, So within that organisation, I uh, manage the urban mobility team that's looking at how we can create vibrant, thriving, healthy towns and cities across the country. Uh, And it's been a really great experience going from working at that city regional level, and I think, um, as I'm sure many of your listeners have experienced, coming up against uh, barriers within the system that make it really hard, um, make it challenging to Deliver at pace, like at the pace we need to now deliver to hit our climate mission, our safety goals. So there was a lot of things that frustrated me, I guess, when I worked at the the regional level, and at the national level we're able to address those things. So I've in the last couple of years kicked off a a number of rule changes, policy changes, um, and funding programmes that that look at how we can make our towns and cities safer, more livable, at a much faster pace than we had been in the past.
0: It sounds like you uh, you went from you know being in the fight you know at the local level trying to implement to Becoming the funder yes. <laughs> of some fun things, right? right. And yeah. so, speaking of some fun things, uh, <laughs> you know, this is uh, this is sort of the the, the website here, uh, your your website, and so this is one of the programs, not you know, not a complete encapsulation of it, but streets are for for people or streets for people. Talk about this uh, this initiative and this program. There's just some amazingly rich things and uh, initiatives that you have in here.
1: Thank you. So Streets for People, we launched two years ago now. It it started out as Innovating Streets and we've adapted now to Streets for People. Uh, It's a program that's looking at growing capability in tactical urbanism and testing and trialing changes in our streets and removing some of the the national barriers that exist to doing that so for example uh, last year we changed our national rule around uh, what we're calling roadway art so we had really strict rules around what you could paint um, on a street and we, we removed that rule for slower streets, low-risk streets, so streets where we can utilise art or um, other techniques to get traffic speeds down to 30 kilometres an hour, we can now paint images and patterns that really reflect and celebrate a local community and a local culture. We're also looking at things like enabling more events in our streets, appreciating the opportunity that events can play in shifting people's uh, imagination about what streets can be used for. So we're looking at guidance that we tested last year and launched this year that takes away the requirement for traffic management for low-key events. The programme has funded 80 projects across the country and supported people working in councils and, and consultancies and communities with a whole lot of support and mentoring and guidance, building up a community of practice of around 350 people across the country who are now involved in rolling out pilots changes tactical urbanism type projects in their towns and cities and the next iteration of the program is going into working much more intensively in a couple of places to really tackle the processes and and support capability build in those cities this picture here is from a town called Whanganui that unlike a lot of towns in New Zealand, has retained a lot of their historic uh, buildings. So it has beautiful fabric, great architecture in the buildings surrounding the streets, but a street that was once very dominated by either parking or traffic. And they worked with the local artist community. It's a a town that's really well known for a, a very thriving artistic community. And they designed all sorts of amazing details in the streets. So the artwork that you can see there painted on the ground through to the Uh, structures that enable covered seating, the lighting in the street, so some really fun and creative details that have created a street that's really attractive and welcoming to the community. And it's, it's been hugely successful there with the local business community and is kicking off a revitalization there where... There's now new businesses moving in and they're asking to not have parking outside their business. They want more tables and chairs or, or planting or, or something that makes a better use of that space outside their shop. So it's been a real success story, that project.
0: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful um, streetscape there and, and, and beautiful old historic buildings. About how large is this city?
1: Uh, it's around 100,000 uh, people, so okay. a, a pretty, yeah, a, a sort of average-sized town in the New Zealand context.
0: Right, right. So when, and I, I guess it's a, a, appropriate to talk a little bit about scale. When you, when you look at some of your bigger cities, what are the population sizes of these cities?
1: Uh, So Auckland is um, by far our largest city. We have around one and a half million people uh, and it's a large city, so it's sprawled quite far outwards. In Auckland, there, we're growing pre-COVID. We've, we've not had a lot of immigration in the last couple of years, but before COVID, we were growing at a, a really significant rate, adding around 800 new residents a week. So growing at a rate that was pretty challenging on, on housing, services, transport in our city. And so we've seen a lot of changes here to enable more housing development in the city and much more densification in the the central parts of our city christchurch is starting to come back after uh, the population drops that they had post earthquake so they're back to being our second biggest city now and then wellington is our third our capital city and the third largest
0: yeah so I've never been to New Zealand. I need to get down there and check it out. There's a few reasons why I've I've always wanted to visit, and one of them is that I grew up raising sheep. Oh, <laughs> so great!
1: They're uh, very
0: familiar to us. Very familiar. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that the the population of uh, sheep uh, far outnumber the, the population of humans <laughs> in New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> but uh, so that that's one of the reasons. Uh, the other reason is just because I've I've had so many friends that have visited there. I have uh, a few friends that live there. And it, I know that it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful country. And my sense was that there was a, a dedicated effort to try to not sprawl out and, and eat up too much uh, farmland and, and, and get into the countryside. It sounds like it was probably much more of a challenge a few decades ago is the current ethic, you know, sort of really dedicated to not continuing to sprawl out horizontally.
1: I uh, we've had some really significant changes at a national level. So our government in the last couple of years has for example removed minimum parking standards we have a national policy statement that requires councils to enable more densification of housing uh, where we need it most so around our public transport uh, routes particularly but generally across our existing urban areas there has been really significant changes that uh, allow people to rebuild urban sections with, in some places, up to three uh, houses on on that section, in some places much, much denser than that, without the same, uh, I guess, red tape or consenting processes that we used to have. So that's really trying to get beyond the not in my backyard or the the complaints that we might hear from a few existing residents in an area and enable development to happen much faster. Auckland, already had a plan that enabled quite a bit more uh, densification and so we've seen significant change in our existing urban area and the government established a new state house builder called Kaingaora. ora it's a organization that is taking existing government owned land and building at a really significant pace yeah much denser housing that enables people um, on low incomes um, through to competitive uh, housing developments uh, that are open to everyone and tenancy opportunities which is really starting to shift housing availability and in some parts of the country starting to tackle our, our massive problem around um, housing unaffordability. Um, so we're, we're seeing things moving in the right direction, but there is still growth happening at our edges. So we, we have some way to go to completely reduce the sprawl in our cities. Yeah.
0: I uh, put up this photo because I think it was it probably the one of the best photos that you sent to me that kind of gives a vision of, of like from, you know, from a much uh, higher perspective and so you can see the city, uh, you know, as it kind of stretches out. And and I'm assuming this is Auckland, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, okay. um, so and this then, is... Then we have um,
0: something very pink here. What is going on? Yes. <laughs>
1: Um, So our city centre in Auckland is surrounded by a motorway network. It wraps around the city centre and and cuts it off from neighbouring suburbs. Uh, and and as you can see there, there's an abundance of motorway lanes, and one of them hadn't been used in a very long time. Uh, so this was a, an emergency off-ramp um, into the city centre from our, our western part of the city. And one of our earliest uh, separated shared paths along the motorway came almost to this point, but there was a gap for people trying to access right into the city centre. So in 2016, we uh, worked as a collective from three agencies to deliver this route that includes the Pink Path, Tiara Efiti, that goes from the previous bit of motorway cycleway network uh, right down into the waterfront. And this it was really a, a celebration of the city, a celebration of our Māori people. It represents the Totara tree, a tree that used to grow in that area, and there's some beautiful artwork uh, along the path. And it was at a point where I mentioned before the government had got behind cycling and announced a, a really significant increase in funding. And this project, particularly, was a flagship for that, a celebration of this real shift that we we were going to see in urban cycleway networks so there was i think it was at a point in our history where there was a lot of optimism and excitement for what was to come
0: yeah I, I'll, I'll do one more photo here that um, i think is probably from that era as well extraordinary you know cycle track two-way cycle track here um and again having some you know natural elements to help with uh, stormwater runoff, um, you know, gardens there. But then again, <laughs> you can see just how huge the, the you know, the neighboring road or motorway is. Was this a, um, with this particular installation, was this taking any lanes away from traffic or was this up on the curb already?
1: No this took a car parking space out from the street. This is the continuation from the previous image that we were talking through at uh, Key Street and in the future this will connect all the way along the waterfront. At the moment it, it goes along for about another maybe one 1 to 2 kilometers but it is one of our busiest uh, cycle routes in Auckland and once we once you get beyond the port there which is what that red fence is um you get a gorgeous view out across the water so it's one of our our most scenic and enjoyable routes but it is the core connector into our eastern suburbs which is is really a Easy, cyclable distance um, into the city centre for people who go there to um, go to restaurants, to work, to study. Where most of our universities are in Auckland, so the the space was um, reallocated from lanes. You can see there's still there's still sufficient there um, for well, everyone else traveling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, they have plenty and- of space. We we we, yeah. we uh, Well, let's do this. Let's let's. We we drifted our way back into your old world there at Auckland. So let's let's get uh, more firmly back into uh, you know your current world. So it, play streets. What what's going on here with play streets?
1: So um, in New Zealand, we have a situation for kids that is pretty challenging. Only 7% of children are getting the exercise that they need to be getting for their own health. And we have communities where a lot of people don't, don't necessarily know their neighbors, communities where parents might not feel comfortable letting their kids explore independently and roam. And Place streets are an opportunity to start having conversations about perhaps what our communities could be like, what would they be like if we were more connected and people were able to get where they needed to go easily. We saw a big opportunity with creating space in which people could connect with their neighbors and feel comfortable letting their kids run around and play, but found that the restrictions that we had, Waka Kotahi had, put in place made that almost impossible. So the traffic management costs and, and bureaucracy that people had to go through to shut a street to traffic was very, very prohibitive. So last year, we introduced a new set of guidance that enables people to shut their street with their bin or whatever they might have available. And to do that without going through a permit scheme, there's uh, some easy guidance that that people can follow that we've tested with communities across the country um, and are really confident that it's easy to do and fundamentally keeps kids safe and parents feeling comfortable to let their kids out and explore so we're starting to see councils across the country introducing these play street programs and our hope is much like we've seen in uh in the uk and north america and in other parts of the world uh, that this program whilst it might seem small and and you might question what the impact will be It's fundamentally going to enable people to rethink what streets are for and question whether continuing to have streets that are dominated by fast moving traffic is is what we want for our local communities. So we see it as an early opportunity to really start to shift our thinking around uh, local community streets and, and how they should be designed and operated. In New Zealand, we have very permeable streets for traffic. Um, so, high levels of shortcutting, what we call rat running traffic going through our residential streets. And that forms a, a major barrier to people wanting to use their streets to enjoy. Yeah, so, yeah. this is a, a kickoff of, of rethinking that.
0: Right, right. And it seems to, is this part of the Streets for People uh, initiative program? So this is one of the initiatives under that umbrella. Okay. Yes, that's okay. right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. So, okay, well, we, we have this video uh, queued up. Let's play this. Actually, before we p- hit play, um, why don't you give a little bit of an introduction? What is this, this, this video all about?
1: So we created a series of videos to celebrate uh, some of the projects from the past year. I mentioned the 78 projects that uh, were rolled out across the country uh, and wanted to celebrate not just the changes that were made in the city, but the people who were involved in those projects. and. Uh, there were just incredible people across the p- country who poured their hearts into these projects. And I think you can really see that come through in this video. It's a, a celebration of people in place.
0: Fantastic. Let's hit play.
2: So this is Drew's Avenue and Rutland Street, it's kind of a a really important heritage precinct in Whanganui and it's also a place where lots of arts activity goes on here and now there is a few new hospitality businesses starting to open up as well. We got the community together once we got the funding and ran three workshops, got them to actually walk the street and look at opportunities that they wanted to take up for creating spaces. They also felt confident because it was a temporary slash semi-permanent thing. They could be risk taking in what they were doing. So we ended up getting quite a transformative design, which I think is the, the strength of tactical urbanism as you can be quite experimental. So the main challenge was how do we create spaces that are nice to be in and have a, a focal point, So yeah, we really tried to focus in on these shelters and then the rest is sort of um, more in, in the street furniture side of things. There's been a lot of significant things that have come into the project, like the large long tables, giving multiple different people an opportunity to sit at one place and meet each other. We've got a really interesting variety of greenery. We've brought in a lot of play features so that families feel comfortable here. And we've designed around environmental elements so that it felt like a really comfortable place to spend time in. The road art itself was this collaboration between Cecilia and Jody, who are both local artists here, and they both wove together Cecilia's iwi designs with Jodie's retro designs and created this collaboration that speaks to how we can collaborate and work together and create something beautiful, when we bring different people and ideas in one space.
0: We were probably one of the, the original creative um, businesses here in the area. And the opportunity to be part of this rejuvenation of this area has been fantastic. We showed our support by adding in our um, our lighting outside the front to help illuminate and um, yeah, and connect with the overall development of the area. Essentially, like we just designed our cities for cars, and along the way we just forgot about
2: pedestrians and cyclists and and common spaces. You know, like so I used to have just people sitting on my steps because it was literally the only place to sit.
0: Now we actually have an area that we can all come together with our different businesses, chat, exchange, um, share our ideas, and I can see that that will just sort of keep growing in the future, and will also be a hub for, um, for different events in the future.
2: If you focus on what's being added, you can just see how good that is for your business, and I think that's what they're seeing here. One of the most important things for these projects to be so successful was that people are really willing to give it a go, whether it's the local community, the businesses, the artists, uh, the students, everyone that was involved in the Druze project, the local council, everyone was so willing to give it a go that it really led to the success of the project. These businesses are really benefiting from it. It's really showcasing that there's things happening in this area and it happened in one month, which is amazing.
0: Fantastic. That was really extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I think it really, um, really helps us understand um, what the opportunities are with faster transition of our streets and you can see there that was filmed about six months ago and and people were out again after COVID lockdowns um, and really wanting to connect with people in their community. Um, It shows how important it's going to be for us to think about the flexibility of our streets to build resilience in our communities so that those important social connections can happen and, and people people can get around places that they need to get to in in ways that are healthy for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, a couple of things that really, you know, caught my attention was, uh, the individual talking about focusing on what's being added. Mm. That's I mean, that, that's yes. classic. I mean, you know, from a human behavior <laughs> perspective, don't, don't focus on what's being taken away, focus on what's being added. The other thing that, uh, um, um, jumped out at me was one, it was wonderful to see the overheads, you know, to be able to see, you know, uh, in, in a much more profound way, uh, some of that street artwork that, that was happening. But the other thing that really resonated for me was, uh, the one person, you know, coming in and saying how quickly it happened. It happened fast mm. within a month. Yeah. You know, the things they Absolutely. started noticing. It.
1: We've, um, I think that was really one of the challenges of our, particularly our, our cycleway design and, and where it hit a town center was the fear of disruption. And, and some of our projects do take years, literally several years to build. They might take up to six to eight years from planning through to opening a new project. And, and that's a lot of time for a community to invest. Um, so being able to feel and experience and understand the potential for change ahead of that, I think it's going to be increasingly important that we can fundamentally reduce the amount of time it's taking to open up our streets, but ultimately to give people the opportunity to experience what it could be like. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the same challenges that people have with reading and understanding a scheme when it comes out on a piece of paper. That can make change feel really scary, really challenging for people. But being able to Go out and have a look and talk to people about maybe this thing doesn't work, let's shift it a bit that way. gives people a lot more confidence in change happening that will meet everyone's needs and represent their community much better.
0: Yeah. And also being able to not only, you know, be able to see that that change happen and that transformation happening relatively quickly, but then also being able to see the positive results happening quickly, too, because that that's clearly part of the excitement that you you saw from some of those business owners is that they were like Mm. excited to see that this the scheme worked. (laughs) You know, people are are, are enjoying it. It's good stuff. Catherine we're coming up to the end of our time is there anything that we haven't yet discussed that you want to make sure we leave the uh, the the listeners and the and the viewers with
1: I guess what's coming um and what we'll start to see in the next decade we we have some really challenging uh, targets for reducing uh, vehicle kilometres travelled in this country and reducing emissions. So we're, we're really starting to see fundamental system shifts occurring. We have a emission reduction plan coming out uh, in May this year, and that's going to enable cities, towns across the country to start to increase the pace of delivery, really focusing in on networks uh, being delivered. And the most effective way of doing that through reallocation of street space and creating low traffic safe neighborhoods around our main street cycleways. So I'm pretty excited about uh, what's coming in in the next decade uh, with creating um, streets that are open and accessible to everyone. So this this work we've been doing for the last couple of years through Streets for People and, and some of the big policy changes underway, that's creating, I guess, the the scaffolding, the platform for the, the really exciting work to take off pretty soon, where we're going to start to see momentum build and, and a snowballing in our towns and cities. Um, so John, hopefully our borders reopen um, mid this year. So in a couple of years time, it'd be great to uh, welcome you here and show you around uh, some of the changes that are occurring in our towns and cities it would be wonderful to host you.
0: Oh, my. I look forward to it (laughs) for sure. Catherine, it has been such an honor and pleasure having you on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you. The honor has been all mine. I'm such a big fan of your podcast.
0: Thank you all so much for tuning in to episode number 118 featuring Catherine King, the urban mobility manager for the New Zealand Transport Agency. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please give it a thumbs up, uh, share it with a friend and leave a comment down below. And if you haven't already done so, I'd be honored to have you subscribe to the channel. Uh, just click on the button down below, ring that notifications bell to indicate what your notifications preferences might be. And uh, two last reminders before we part ways, uh, please be sure to check out the Active Town Store for some of my fun and zany uh, Streets of people merchandise, like this fun water bottle here. And secondly, if you're enjoying the channel, please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page. Every little bit adds up, and it really helps me keep the channel going. Well, that's all for this week's episode, so until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.